If you got a Bible, I hope you do, and I know you're thinking, this is a church planner event. Well, I need a Bible. Uh, it matters a lot. Hey, it's, it's an honor to be with you. I'm going to be in Matthew chapter 20, and uh, it really is an honor. The reason I came is because when Pastor Bruce Wesley says, come to Houston, you do whatever he tells you to do. Amen? He's a really big deal, and I'm honored to know him, and he's helped us a whole lot as a church. And um, I didn't know what I was getting into, but it... This is really special, man. I've never seen anything like this, what you guys have here uh, in any city I've ever preached in in the country. So, and I know you just live here, so like you're used to it. But I'm telling you, the, the diversity, the age differences, you got, you know, the clean cut people, the bald and beard, and you know, you're probably an Ashley Nine guy if you do that. This is really, really, really special. So it is, it's a huge honor to be here. Uh, like Bruce said, I planted a church in 2012. It was a total accident. I didn't mean to. I did not grow up in church. That was not my story at all. I got in some trouble when I was a teenager, and instead of picking up trash on the side of the road, my football coach talked to the judge, and I cut grass at the local Southern Baptist camp. And uh, that's where uh, I asked Jesus into my heart. That's not the language I necessarily would use today, but I asked, and he came in, and he's still there, so whatever. And so uh, <laughs> then a few years later, I went on staff at that camp, and I was like a part of the work crew, just to cut grass, that kind of stuff. I was a lifeguard and um, had no intentions whatsoever in going into ministry. And I'm standing in the back of the room with about 100 uh, high school kids, in Bennettsville, South Carolina, that's where I grew up in a little place called Dillon, uh, kind of the Redneck Riviera. It's, um, it, 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 it would make like Padre Island look really nice. You know what I'm saying? That's what Myrtle Beach is. That's kind of the area I grew up in. In fact, my daddy used to say the, the greatest thing ever come out of Dillon, South Carolina is I-95. And that's a fact, all right? And so I'm hanging out at this little camp and Coach Bully, my football coach, led me to Christ. He leans over while the guy's up there singing. Now listen, this was before like Chris Tomlin and Louie invented worship. Remember, remember, remember I am a C? Anybody remember that one? I am a C-H, I am a C-H-R, C. And I, we were Southern Baptists and I was like in the ninth grade before I realized that they were spelling I'm a Christian. I thought they were speaking in tongues and we were going to get in tr trouble with the deacons. But he's up there singing I am a C with an overhead projector. And Coach Lee leans over to me and says, boy, when the singing's done, you're going to preach. I was like, what? He goes, yeah. like in two minutes? He goes, yes, son. And I said, like, coach, uh, here's the thing. <clears throat> I'm not comfortable speaking in front of people. And the way my old southern coach would talk, he kind of barked. He said, boy, did you say comfortable? Do you, you think Paul and Silas were comfortable in prison? Boy, do you think Daniel was comfortable in the lion's den? Boy, do you think Jesus Christ was comfortable on the cross? <laughs> no, I don't, no, sir. No, sir. I don't, I don't think he was. And I said, so, coach, what do I talk about? And he said, boy, you talk about Jesus, you talk about 30 minutes. And so I did. <laughs> First sermon I ever preached. Preached out of John 3, 16. It was the only verse I knew in the whole Bible. Been a Christian for one year. So I go up and do that. And when I walked off of that little baby stage, he said, coach saw something that I'd never seen in me. He said, boy, when you teach the Bible, I see two things come alive. I see, I see you come alive and I see them come alive. And I assured him, Coach, I will never, ever, ever work at a church. Isn't that hilarious? So that is student ministry for about 15 years, minding my own business. It was awesome, man. Student ministry is awesome. You guys all have student pastors. You don't do nothing. Isn't it awesome, man? You just hang out. 
discipling and fellowshipping with kids. And you know the Bible better than everybody. And even if, you, even if you're the worst, you get a whole new group like every three years. So you just hang in there. It's awesome, man. So, and then I was, I was on Sabbath at this church, and they put me in charge of a service. And it started at 1122. That's why we called it 1122. I'm the least creative person I've ever met. So we just called it the time that we were going to meet so people would know when to show up. And God breathed on it. And after a little while, my, my senior pastor, the best Christian I've ever met in my life, a guy named Pastor Jerry Sweat, he said, I think you should plant a church. And I literally, I didn't even know it was a thing. I Googled it. And there was a church planting conference called Exponential uh, down the road. And so we went and figured it out. And in 2012, we, we planted. And he allowed us to stay there. I mean, I was, a, I was leading a service that outgrew the whole church, and he allowed us to stay there for like a year and a half while we trained up leaders and figured out what staff was going to come with me and who was coming with me. And we found an old dilapidated Walmart and raised enough money to renovate the Walmart and move in in 2012. And um, when we were going to move into Walmart, I called my daddy and said, Daddy, we're going to put the church in Walmart. And he said, Boy, I always thought you'd work at Walmart. And so uh, I offered him a job as a greeter, and we've still been going on, man. I just want to, this isn't like a sermon. Sermons have like beginnings and endings and all that stuff. We've got a bunch of preachers here. I just want to share a few things out of Matthew chapter 20 that I find very uh, encouraging and just some real talk on what it takes if you're going to plan a church, if you're going to lead a church, if you're going to pastor a church, especially these days. We'll pick it up in verse 17. It says this, And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. In case you're new to Bible study, this is called the gospel. Your church has to be built on the gospel. It's not a strategy, strategy, it's not a facility, it's not a personality, it's not some kind of method that you rip off from somebody else. When Jesus takes the boys to Sin City, Caesarea Philippi, in the book of Matthew, and he says, who do people say that I am? And they give the same answer that that we would, many people would give today, you know, a religious leader. And then he asked the most important question you could ever deal with in all of eternity. But who do you say that I am? And you know who's going to talk first, you, go, you know who's going to talk most. Peter. Hey, I know. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus is like, winner, winner, chicken dinner. That didn't come from you. That's revealed to you by the Father. He changes his name to Rocky. And upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. And the rock is the public declaration that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And the promise there is that Jesus would build the church, not me and you. It would be built upon the rock and that his church would prevail. Now, your church, my church, we'll see next year. We'll see at the 200th meeting. But the church built on the solid rock of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is the prevailing church. Now, the reason I want to start there is because notice what happened so quickly. The mother of the sons of Zebedee, after hearing the gospel come out of Jesus' mouth, I don't know how long it is between verses 19 and 20, but she's like, yeah, yeah, enough about you. I got a question about me. 
This should make you feel better as a preacher, by the way. If you feel like, I feel like I have to constantly say the same thing to my people over and over and over and over, and they still don't get it. I got real good news for you people. They could make great disciples. Because the disciples, after three years of messages from Jesus that he was going to be handed over, flogged, crucified, dead, buried, and on the third day be resurrected, they still didn't get it. So if you feel like you're, if you're an amazing preacher, which I'm confident that you are, but you know that your people are a little slow on the uptake, I got good news. They can make great disciples. Whatever you do, don't take your eyes off of the gospel. Immediately following the gospel, verse 20, the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. And Jesus answered, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, we are able. And he said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father." And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. By the way, that verse scares me a little bit. It shall, because sometimes it, it is so among me. But he says, it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your doulos, is the Greek word. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. I just want to share four ideas with you from these scriptures. If you want to be a church planner, you want to lead anything, number one is this. It is, it is not your position, but your proximity to Jesus that matters more than anything else. Even though this mama's got some seriously wrong motives. I mean, she's thinking Jesus is going to come in, kick out the Romans, take over again, and she wants her boys to be like senior VP of Jesus Incorporated, right? She's looking for positions of power. But in the kingdom of God, it's not about positions of power. It is about your proximity to Jesus. But the thing that she gets right is she comes and kneels at the feet of Jesus. Church planners, church leaders, it gets busy, doesn't it? I mean, it gets really, really, really busy. And people, your people, those blessed sheep that you get to serve, they have no idea how hard it is, how much work it takes. In fact, I've had people, we've had a relatively large church, and I had somebody at our church ask me if this was my full-time job. <laughs> if, was it, do, you do, do you have like another thing? What, and then they said, what do, you do, what, do you, what do you do all day? I go, well, I mostly just pray for sinners like you. And if you quit sinning so much, I could get some work done. Right? In fact, when I was going to seminary, I told my daddy, I, we didn't grow up in church, he didn't know what seminary was. I said, Daddy, I'm going to seminary. He said, boy, seminary. I was like, it's like preacher school. He's like, you need a school for that? You work a half a day a week, study one book your whole life. Why do you need a school? <laughs> but that's how it is, right? But we know how busy it can be. My question to you is this, are you kneeling at the feet of Jesus? Are you, are you fighting really, really hard to stay close to him? May we never, ever, ever 
sacrifice our own walk with Jesus on the altar of ministry. I mean, every week, right, we see another name of somebody. And what happened? My staff, we've got a really young staff. Most of our staff got saved at our church, so they have no idea what regular church is like. They have no idea. And they'll hear about something happening, and they come to me, and they're like, Pastor, how could he? What was he thinking? I'm like, man, he wasn't thinking. I can tell you exactly what happened. Here's what happened. Some person began to take a step away from the gospel, away from Jesus, away from the cross, and the Spirit of God tapped them on the shoulder and said, whoa, 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 whoa. And they went, I got this. Everything else is just details. Everything else is just details. Are you finding your rest in Him? Please, please. Listen, I pastor a, a, a lot of people come to our church. The moment you begin to try to find your identity in what you perceive as success in ministry, it's over. It is over. There's no budget that will ever fully and finally satisfy you. There's no attendance number that will ever make you feel okay. The peace will never be found in your performance in ministry. It can only be found in the person of Jesus Christ. There's a passage that I have to go back to over and over and over and over, and it's when Jesus is getting baptized. John the Baptist is out there, just, you know, crazy hair, spends time in the woods eating roaches. You can call it a locust. We know what that thing is, you know. He's eating roaches. He's kind of homeschool Jedi robe, just screaming at people, one message. And then he stopped. Behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. Jesus walks into the water, gets baptized. The heavens open up. God the Father speaks out loud. I don't think we have an appreciation for this, by the way, because from eternity past to the moment he was incarnated, God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit were just lavishing love on one another in this like perfect kind of way. And then he is, in a sense, separated from that. And then he walks into that water. And God the Father says, Behold my son in whom I am well pleased. Pop quiz. How much ministry had Jesus done at that point? Zero. I know he showed up. That was a really big deal. But for 30 years, man, he didn't heal anybody. He didn't preach a sermon. He didn't resurrect anybody. He had done nothing. And yet, the verdict came before the performance. Pastors, church leaders, you should probably remind yourself of that. I have to remind myself of that all the time. That before I ever stand up to preach, the message from the Heavenly Father through the blood of Jesus over me is, Behold my Son in whom I am well pleased. Yeah, it's not about a position of power. It's all about our proximity to Jesus. The second thing I see here is this. When the mom says, hey, can my boy sit at your right and left? And, she's, and Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? Now, we know post-cross and resurrection, post-Garden of Gethsemane prayer, that the cup that he's talking about is to drink the cup of the wrath of God. That this is love, not that we love God, but he loved us and sent his son as the propitiation for our sin. The payment that satisfies the judgment of a holy and righteous God. And he says, are you sure? You think you can drink the cup? And they're like, yeah, we can drink that cup. He's like, nah, you will drink the cup. Because every single one of the apostles died a martyr's death. 
Every single one. You see, if you want to lead a church, you want to pastor a church, the second thing is this. You better have the ability to endure pain. You better have the ability to endure pain. The level of leadership that you were able to attain is directly proportionate to the pain that you can endure. If you want to make people happy, good gracious, don't plant a church. Sell ice cream or something. I mean, Paul says things like this in Philippians 3, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. You plant a church, you will share in his sufferings. And again, the amount of pain that you can endure is directly proportionate to the amount of leadership that God can trust you with. You go, where do you get that? I don't know, let's go with the cross. Yeah, man. I hear people talk all the time at church. Pray the dumbest prayers. You ever hear these dumb prayers? Dear God, just give us some traveling mercies. Just watch over the van as we go on our mission trip. I want to be like, have you read the New Testament? You want the Spirit of God to leave you and hover over the van and try to... No, 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 man. You want Him in you, working in you, right? And then this one. We just want to be the hands and feet of Jesus. What happened to the hands and feet of Jesus? He wasn't handing out peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. They were nailed to the cross. That's what's happening. It, anybody, <laughs> thank you. Anybody, uh, anybody go through some painful moments in the last two or three years trying to be a leader? Oh, my goodness gracious, man. It was like, first of all, listen, man. Give yourself a break. None of us have ever done this before ever, leading through something like this. And what, what became painfully clear to me very, very soon is that no matter what you did, it was all three little bears. No matter the decision you made, it was, for some people it was not enough, for some people it was too much, and for some people it was just right. I mean, the emails that we all got, right, as you're making this, now I live in Florida, so we quit COVID like before it started. We're like, no, nah, don't worry about it, all right? <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We shut down for a little while, and then we got going again. And, the, and the, I mean, on the same day we would get the email, you Marxist-loving, Caesar-worshiping, don't have trust in God, call yourself a pastor, I can't believe you even shut down one time. The very next email in my inbox why do you hate people and want them to die and you're opening that Petri dish that you call a church? <laughs> I mean, over and over. I'm leaving because you put up a sign about masks. I'm leaving because you don't require every single person to wear a mask. I'm leaving because you've never mentioned race. I'm leaving because the only thing you've talked about the last week is race. Here's what I just decided, man. I didn't get into it for those people sending those emails. I always lovingly tell our church, if you have comments to share with me, I would be happy if you would just send them to my email address at jimmycrackscorn at idontcare.com. <laughs> and so what became clear to me is no matter what I did, man, somebody's mad. Somebody's mad. Somebody's mad. That's fine, man. That's fine. They're not my shepherd. I don't have to listen to their voice. For sure, we have ears to hear people that are in need. For sure, 
for sure. We care for people. We empathize with people. Okay? And you cannot simultaneously defend and empathize. But what we have got to do is whatever the shepherd has told us to do. Just, be, just fulfill the ministry that God has given us. This is what Paul tells Timothy. Fulfill your ministry. And whoever goes with you, praise God for that. And whoever doesn't, God bless their ministry, man. Praise God. There's all kind of different churches in all kind of different cities led by all kind of different people, man. Praise God for that. But we are going to endure pain. Chuck Swindoll says this, when God has an impossible task to accomplish, he finds an impossible person and he crushes them. So leave room in your life for the crushing. Every great work of God, brokenness and failure are necessary. You got to have an ability to endure pain. The third thing I see in this text is this. If you're going to lead a church, if you're going to plan a church, you have to know how to submit to authority. You got to know how to submit to authority. And this is the biggest warning I would give to church planners, man. Because we got a whole bunch of just kind of ticked off expert youth pastors sitting in the back of a church that they're a little bit frustrated with, and they are God's answer to the Great Commission and what's going to happen. <laughs> I mean, think about this. Jesus the Christ, eternally existent, who has spoken everything into his existence, and it's by his very power that he holds the world together, and yet when the mom says, can my boy sit at your right and left, he says, that's over, my, that's over my head. That's above my pay grade. I don't get to decide that. We're going to have to run that one up the flagpole to God the Father because only he gets to decide those kinds of things. That Jesus, who knew all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him, he didn't exercise that authority by telling everybody what to do, but he humbles himself. He treats everybody else as if they're better than themselves, that he empties himself, which is crazy because there's a bunch of church planters that are full of ourselves, amen? And he's obedient. Dresses himself as a servant all the way to the cross, that he knows what it is like to submit to, to his authority. You see... One of the things that I would encourage you in is this, is how in the world would you ever expect God to give you any level of authority if you don't know how to submit to authority? That's why a network like this, a network of networks like this matters like crazy. It's one of the reasons we joined Acts 29. I just wanted some people over me. We play, this is crazy, man, okay. So I'm a recovering Baptist, so all of you Baptists, God bless you. Okay, I'm a recovering Southern Baptist. And then uh, I went to work at a Methodist church. So think about how fun that was, you know. And, and then I planted a Reform Acts 29 church. It's crazy, man. Like Calvin and the Wesleys are just fighting it out over our church in heaven, right? And so, but here's the thing. So I'm working at this Methodist church and my Methodist senior pastor, and there's all these things that agree, man. I've got a Southern Baptist background. And so all the things that I thought the Methodists were getting wrong, I was just going to fix them. It was going to be awesome. Right? And then, and then when he said it's time to plant, here's the thing, man. I just submitted to my pastor's authority. Because God always works in and through authority. I mean, if you think about it, the thing that happens right after Peter says, you were the Christ, the son of the living God. After Jesus says, upon this rock, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. 
Then the next thing he does is says, I'm going to hand you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. One of the major problems in America right now in regards to getting the Great Commission to every single person is we got a, we got a whole bunch of people and they're more interested in building up their key ring than they are handing over the keys to the kingdom of heaven and say, hey man, why don't you take a run at it? It's your turn now. And listen, so if you are in positions of authority, don't hang on to the keys too long. It ain't about how the size of your church and how many people can work for you. And, and listen, here's the, here's the thing. I was talking to Matt Chandler. I was talking to a dear friend of mine years ago, and I was talking about some, some guys. I was like, I don't, I, I don't know, man. I don't know if they're ready. I don't know if they're, do you think, I don't know if they're ready. And he asked a very simple question. You think you were ready? <laughs> oh, Lord, no. I'm still not ready. What do you mean? I have no idea what I'm doing. He's like, right, right. So what if the people over you would have waited until everything was worked out before they gave you some measure of responsibility? You see, God always works in and through authority. See Jesus. And if you are under authority right now, like you're launching from a church or there's some network over you or, listen, the people in authority over you need a couple of things, okay? They want at least two things from you. They want to think that you think they have what it takes. And they want to think that you think it was God's idea that they are in the position that they are in. And if you don't think those two things, then good gracious, please do everybody a favor and leave. And leave. And if you have people on your team that do not fully support you in the role that you're in, especially if they're like paid staff, you can get that for free all the time. Why in the world would you pay for people to subvert that. Proximity to Jesus, the ability to endure pain, submission to spiritual authority. The fourth thing I see is this. It's just being a servant. Let me ask you this question. I mean, Jesus says it. He called them together, and he says, whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Let me ask you this question. Do you see yourself as a leader who serves or who is a servant that gets to lead? Because everybody's cool with being a servant until you get treated like one. In fact, here's how twisted we are, okay? The primary way in church world we use the word servant is an adjective to the kind of leader we are. Oh, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a servant leader. That's cute. Jesus didn't say anything about being a leader. He said, just be a servant. And here, here's what scares me, man. The, the moment, like, pastor and church planner became like a full-time vocation, it's a little scary. Because in the Scripture, in the New Testament, the word for shepherd and pastor are the same word, okay? And I think in American church planning right now, we got a lot more cowboys than we do shepherds. Now, I know I'm in Houston, but let me just say this. I ain't saying anything negative about cowboys. Cowboys are cool, bro. I mean, cowboys are super cool. Anybody watching Yellowstone? How cool? Or don't say yes. It, I mean, Rip, that dude, when Rip looks at them people and says, you want to fight, fight me, that should be in the Proverbs, amen? <laughs> I mean, cowboys are cool. Who don't want to be a cowboy? The only problem is, is God hadn't called us 
to cowboy a church. He's called us to shepherd a church, to serve a church. And there's a fundamental difference. Like shepherds know the sheep, and cowboys count head of cattle. I've never been to one pastor's conference in my life where somebody comes up to me and says, how's the condition of your flock? They only ask, so how many are you running? And you realize when you ask somebody that, you know they're lying to you, right? They count ears, <laughs> not noses. <laughs> that the job of the shepherd is to protect the sheep. Jesus said he would lay down his life for the sheep. But the the job of the cowboy is to protect the brand. And if you ever neglect the sheep for the sake of the brand, you're not shepherding your people. The job of the shepherd is to feed, to care for the sheep. That we have a good shepherd. We shall not be in want. He makes us lie down in green pastures. He leads us beside still waters. He restores our soul, and we are under shepherds for the great shepherd. But the cowboy, like, fattens the calf for profit. The shepherds lead in a fundamentally different way than a cowboy leads. A cowboy gets in the back of the herd and with a lot of noise pushes a herd of cattle where they may not want to go. And a shepherd goes first and the sheep know his voice and he calls him by name. And he goes first and he says, follow me. He could rightly say what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, follow me as I follow Christ. Pastors, let me ask you this. If your whole church's prayer life looked like your prayer life, would that be good? If your church's devotional life looked like your devotional life, if your whole church, if every husband treated their wife like you treat yours, would that be good? And then maybe the scariest one of all is this one, man. Shepherds are supposed to love the sheep. And cowboys love being a cowboy. All right, I live in Jacksonville, Florida. I think there used to be cowboys back in the 1800s. There ain't no cowboys in Florida anymore. But you know what there are in Florida? There's cowboy stores. I mean, look, I got cowboy boots, cowboy pants. You can get a cowboy belt buckle, get you a cowboy shirt and a cowboy hat, and, and not know a cow. <laughs> there are games where cowboys get together to compete against one another to figure out who is the best cowboy. I ain't never heard of a shepherd game, have you? I ain't never seen a shepherd store with like, you know, Jedi robes and some weird sandals and a little crook. People just hanging out like a shepherd, man. And yet, what scares me there is there's a whole bunch of pastors right now, and it seems to me that they love being a pastor more than they love the people that they're pastoring. You see, in the book of John, as the disciples are gathering together, man, for the Last Supper, Jesus, knowing all authority in heaven and earth, has been put under him to show his disciples the full extent of his love. He didn't preach. He didn't do a miracle. He didn't be like, all right, here's one more story. That's not what he did. He didn't give a prophecy. He dressed himself as a servant, and he washed his disciples' feet. You see, when... When this mom comes to Jesus and says, hey, listen, my boys want to be great. He didn't say there's anything wrong with wanting to be great. He just takes the definition of greatness that every single one of us have grown up with in this culture, and he just turns it completely upside down. 
He says, you want to be great? It's about proximity to me. You want to be great? It's not about being comfortable at all. It's actually, you got to have the ability to drink this cup. You, you want to be great? Then you have to submit to authority. It's the Gentiles that rule their position over one another, and it shall not be so among us. You want to be great? Then you serve. You serve. And that's how, that's how you become a great church planner. That's how you become a great church leader, great pastor. I had a guy, a church planner, ask me very recently. <clears throat> he says, what, what's the best advice that you can give me? And I thought, well, I mean, that's kind of wide open, right? And I just happened to be studying the Gospel of John. And in John chapter 2, Jesus is at the wedding of Cana. They run out of wine. You know it. They run out of wine. His mama comes to him because she's been treasuring these things in her heart, right, since his birth. She's like, is it now? Is it now? Like, are you going to do your thing now? For 30 years, she's been waiting for her boy to do what he's going to do. So she comes to him. They're, they're out of wine. And then he says a verse that you can never quote, husbands, out of context, okay? Woman, what does this have to do with me? All right, so don't ever say that. And then the next thing that happens is the greatest advice for every pastor, for every leader, really for every believer I can find in the entire Bible. John 2, 5, Mary gathers the servants together and she looks at them. Jesus is standing here. Here are the servants. And she says these words. Do whatever he tells you to do. That's it. Do whatever he tells you to do. Pastor Bruce is right. If Jesus has told you to plant a church, you ain't crazy. In fact, you'd be crazy not to. Now, if he has not told you to, this is the dumbest thing in the world, man. Go get you a regular job, make you some money, and give it to church planters that he is called to plant churches, all right? Or if you think church planting is a hobby, get a boat or do something else, man. This is not a hobby. This is not for the faint of heart. But she says, do whatever he tells you to do. Now, here's what I need you to think about. Think about the next four or five things that he told them to do. None of them made any sense whatsoever. Go get the stone jars, the ones we've been ceremonially washing our hands in for the last four days with the dirty dish soap water in it. Yep, go get those. That doesn't make any sense. He goes and gets it. They bring them over here. Okay, fill them up with water. What are we even doing? This doesn't have anything to do with anything. Somebody got a ladle. I need you to go get a ladle. Where are we going to get a ladle? They go get a ladle. How about dip some out? What are you talking about? Take it to the master of ceremonies. Are you trying to punk us? What are you doing here? None of it makes any sense at all. And here's what's crazy. Little do the servants know that on the other side of about six steps of obedience hangs a miracle that we're sort of talking about 2,000 years later. So let me ask you this, church planner, church leader, what is he telling you to do? Maybe it's to go home and repent. Maybe it's to go to your team and say, I'm sorry. Maybe it's to rearrange your entire schedule so that you make sure. I know it's not, it doesn't seem like the most productive thing the most efficient use of your time, but you know you got to work on that proximity to Jesus thing. What is he telling you to do? And if, you're, if you can't think of something in the last six or seven months that in the natural makes no sense whatever, whatsoever, are you actually listening to him? Because oftentimes our good shepherd will call us to do things that if it won't work without him, then it probably ain't him because he wants us to know that more than anything else we are desperate for him. And here's what's crazy, man. 
planting that church? I'm sure there's plenty of churches in Houston, right? But planting the one that he told you to plant or moving into that new facility or, or, or taking a risk and going to that second service or whatever the thing is that he tells you to do, you have no idea what hangs in the balance of just a few steps of your obedience. So my prayer for you is that you would be a great church planner, that you would be a great pastor. Not by any measure of any of the popular church magazines that come out, but that you would be a great pastor and church planner in the eyes of our one great God because you do whatever he tells you to do. Let me pray for you. Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, God, we love you more than anything. Lord, I pray for every man, every woman, every child here. Lord, who in the world are we that you would call us, your children, to be a part, a significant part of, of your command to take the gospel to the very ends of the earth? Lord, I pray for Houston. I pray that you would use the men and women in this very room right now to change eternities. God, we thank you and we praise you for the day. I don't know exactly how it's going to work because right now we see through a glass dimly, but one day for your glory, we would be standing in your presence and these men and women would see generations and generations and generations of men and women from every tribe and every tongue and every nation confessing Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, bowing down at the throne and somehow for your glory, they would know it was because the faith that you gave them, the courage that you gave them to take a few steps of obedience towards what you were calling them to do, that we would store up our treasures in heaven. The only thing I can figure we can take with us there is praise and people. So God, I pray, I pray. I pray for a revival that breaks out. It starts right here in Houston and spreads throughout our country and all around the world for your glory and because of the name of Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank y'all.